Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Scott David Chase. This is My Truth. Tell me yours. On this episode, I talked to Jonathan Sanchez and Regula Sanchez-Smith. Um, together, they have the band The Upper Strata. I got to stay with them for a couple nights in Portland. I've known them since we all lived in Arizona. We didn't live there together, but um, uh, they have since moved to Portland. I have moved to New Hampshire, but uh, uh, they're a great band and uh, even better friends. And uh, it was great to catch up with them and hang out with them for a couple of days. So check out this conversation that we had over dinner. Hey, guys, something cool for season two. Uh, I now have a sponsor. Uh, that sponsor is WeAreDapperTize.com. It's a company that was started by two brothers, Andrew and Julian. Um, they have a whole selection of different types of ties. You know, there's plenty of occasions where you're going to need a tie. I I pulled up the website. I checked it out. If I need to order a tie, I'm going to go to this website first because it's less expensive than in the store. And if you use the promo code TRUTH on WeAreDapperTies.com, you'll get free shipping. Normally costs you 5 bucks to get it shipped, but free shipping anywhere in the U.S. if you put in promo code TRUTH on WeAreDapperTies.com. So, uh, yeah, We Are Dapper Ties. Check them out, guys. Hours or so, where I'm like, ah, wish I was recording this right now, but that's yeah. it's okay. It's uh, the whole thing behind it is not to in- encapsulate like a. It's not supposed to be an all-encompassing, you know, portrait of people. It's just a snippet. Yeah, a little, you know, the arc of a conversation. Yeah. yeah. What? This is us. I think this will. I think this is the first multilingual uh, episode of the podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah. Can I swear? You can say whatever you want. You can swear in German. No, no, no. No. I got in the habit of doing that, and then I went and lived in Switzerland, and I was in real trouble. Yeah. Because they understood me. Could you speak German before you met her? I um I started to learn when I met her, yeah. just from tapes and stuff and driving around. I was doing archaeology, so I was driving along and I would just put German language tapes on for five or five and eight hours at a pop and started to pick it up pretty quickly. And uh, and then when I got uh, when I went to live in Italy, I kept trying to do that, but I was having to learn Italian at the same time. Which is kind of a mess. Yeah. Learning German and Italian simultaneously, and when you're in immersed in it, you know you kind of you kind of pick up a lot more because you're just hearing it all the time and sure. embracing your thoughts just yeah, are in that yeah. in that language. And uh, I would sit at the dinner table at her house, and and it was just all German all the whole time. And then her her family from Geneva, they all speak French, and then. One of the one of the brothers-in-law was Italian, so he would speak Italian to their to their girls, and um, so it's like the United Nations at the dinner table. Right. You know, it's just a lot of different languages, but you you find pretty quickly that if you want to be involved in the conversation, you gotta you gotta, you gotta pick, it, pick up. it up, yeah. And so I pick it up in little ways, and it just gets people get tired of having to translate. So uh, as soon as I as soon as I got back to the states, and I. And we were married and everything else. I started taking uh, language courses then formally, and the, I, I found that I was doing really well in them because I had already taught myself so much. Yeah. And then uh, when we got back to Switzerland, of course, it's total immersion. But the thing is, it's a dialect; it's another type of German, so you can't really learn it in a school. Yeah, you learn a lot more in in the environment. They always think you're a foreigner when you speak high German because if you speak high German it's or, or uh, written German, it's it's a sign that you're not from there. 
and so they immediately know you're a foreigner, and they may just as well switch to English if they know you're from right. in the States, because they all want to practice their language too. So for a while, I was just, everybody was always speaking English to me, so I kind of had problems with that. But uh, it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, you, you're, you're immersed in it, so you, you've got to kind of sink or swim. Um, you get tired of people always recognizing that you're a foreigner, so you start to imitate the accent better. Yeah. And after a while, they... they no, be, you don't. I have a No, I You can't speak German. See, now my, my hundreds of German listeners are going to know what you're saying. But it's, it's German. It's so it's different from every little village. Yeah. And it's disappearing because it's, as globalization, you know, is spreading even to these remote villages. Um, dialects are disappearing and some of the old words are disappearing and like even her parents who were steadfast in their dialect are starting to switch more towards the Zurich dialect. Mm. So it's kind of disappearing but for a while it was just isolation. Every little village had its own way of speaking. There's 24 cantons and uh, some of them are French speaking. One of them is Romanish or Latin speaking and there's um, one that's Italian and most of them are Swiss German. Yeah. Uh, I just realized we should probably turn the music off, yeah. so I don't have to clear all the all the songs that the the rights to it when I put the. Oh, do you have to do that, huh? Yeah, it's funny. Um, the ask half type thing. Well, it's one of those things that if I mean I could technically put it up, and no one would notice, but as soon as somebody complains about it and reports it, they run their diagnostic on it and realize what it is and then you get in big trouble and they shut you down. Alright. And then they go back through every episode that you've ever done and to see if there's any anything else that they, you know. It's crazy how they uh, come at yeah. you. Um, That's why it's separate. What is it? It's burned. Oh. The onions are burned the best way to enjoy onions. Whip that. Um. Drink responsibly. What's that? Do we have to say that? Drink responsibly? Well, they didn't know that we were drinking wine until just now. So now, yes, if you're enjoying... Well, none of us are driving tonight, so we're all drinking responsibly. Mm -hmm. Mm. This is the wine, what is it? Mm. Viognier. Oh, that's good. Um, so this is a, just a kind of a Austrian, Hungarian, Germanic pasta. Yeah. Everywhere from Poland and Lithuania to parts of France where we this stuff, so mm. it's real simple as you saw, you just make it fresh and put it on in there. Yeah. It's tasty and hearty. So where did you guys meet? You gonna tell? <laughs> no. I was gonna say, I've, so I've known you guys for several years now, but I don't think I ever actually heard this story. I did an internship in Colorado Springs. Okay. And... When I, you were working for the mine company? Not yet. Okay. Um, I was actually living in, in New Mexico, working as an archaeologist for the Museum of New Mexico, and my truck broke down on Labor Day weekend, and we couldn't get parked, so I was stuck in Colorado. Okay. And I went into this cantina place that I had gone to now and then, Jose Muldoon's, kind of a cheesy concept restaurant in mm -hmm. Long Springs. It was karaoke night. <laughs> And I was having a Dos Equis or something. Mm -hmm. um, one one seat left in the whole bar. Um, about this much beer left. Just about to leave and she sits down next to me and I was like, she looks like one of those persons who just did like a study abroad and was really trying to look 
European mm-hmm. and taking pretentious European look. And then she said hello to me, and I was like, oh no, she really is European. Oh no, she's just European. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we just hit it off, started joking with her about music and whatever else. And yeah. I just thought she was really funny, so I was like, oh, then we're another beer and hang out. And then I'm like, oh, that's karaoke night. I'm going to get a new song. And it just went on like that. And he was trying to get me to sing too. Yeah. I was like, no, I don't know any songs. I only know German songs. And he was trying to convince me to sing um, 99 Red Balloons. 99 Muff Balloons, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they had it. But she took it out. Anyhow. But we <laughs> traded emails and, and whatever. And I was like, oh, it's too bad I'm not living in Colorado Springs anymore because yeah. I think it would hang out with her. She's fun. But I'll give her my email anyhow. I'm going back to New Mexico. So I get the truck fixed and head back there. And her sister's like, he's living in Santa Fe. You need to go see Santa Fe. It's beautiful. Yeah. So it's really kind of your sister's fault that he went any further. <laughs> and I was totally up for hosting her and, you know, showing her around. And so that just kind of became a mission. It's like, well, you can't be here without seeing the Grand Canyon. And right. we need to go to Arches. And we need... So we would do these crazy Road trips, yeah, which in, often t- entailed me driving like ten and fifteen hours to. Unless it snowed, I figured out that whenever it started snowing, he asked me to drive. She's better at it. Yeah, yeah for sure. But you know, you grew up in the snow culture. I grew up in Florida, so right. I thought I was always safer. I'm still like that. <laughs> well, I think the creepiest or funniest thing. Those two things are sometimes close. Sure. Yeah. Um, he lived in the exact same apartment as I did in Colorado Springs. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we found out he dropped me off at work one time. And um, he's like, yeah, I used to live in this house. And they turned this huge Victorian house into a business. And it used to be six apartments. And it turns out we, we lived in the exact same apartment. Um, where you bump your head when you do the dishes. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like the evening, weird. Yeah. How many years apart? Well, that was a funny thing was is that I was renting it out and they, they were like, well, somebody bought it and they're going to turn it into a travel agency. You all have to get out. You've got 30 days. Yeah. So I moved out because they were starting this travel agency and then they started bringing over interns and she was just one of the interns. So... In a weird way, they moved me out and brought her brought to her me, in. and we mm-hmm. ended up in the same place again. It's like it was just strange. So it was always like fifteen, fifteen. Has always been this kind of weird number for us because it's like, well, what does it mean that we're in the same apartment? Fifteen, fifteen, Tejon was the, was the address, mm-hmm. but just kind of weird. And whenever we would tell people that, they'd be like, "Wow, that's destiny." <laughs> you know? Wow, you're meant to like in the whole story from beginning to end of a truck breaking down, mm-hmm. Labor Day weekend, can't get the part. Just happened to meet her. Can you prove that she didn't sabotage your truck though? No, she wouldn't even know <laughs> what my truck was, or we didn't. Or so she's had you convinced. Right, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> no, it took him some convincing. Because I was done with guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'd both been through the ringer, and that was what was cool, is that I just felt comfortable with her, and like, yeah, she's, she's cool, I, I like hanging out with her. Mm-hmm. Not interested, don't want to go down that path. And then there's the logistics of it. It's like, um, we speak a common language, but, you know, where's this going? I can't speak her language enough to go work live in the right. country. It's were you still living in, in Switzerland at the time? Mm-hmm. I mean, you were in Colorado Springs then, but... Yeah. Um, I still had a year to go at the university to finish my degree. Yep. And so, I only moved to the States for a year mm-hmm. with the intention to going back. And, like, one day I found out that he sold his entire CD collection. And, like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm going to come to Europe. And so he moved to Italy, and I was at the southern border of Switzerland. Yeah. And 
So we could continue the relationship there. Yeah, I was like, this is important to me. I don't want this to go away. But it's too soon to get married, I think. Right, right. And this raises some real complications. I had studied Spanish. I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. I was pretty pretty terrible at it. Everybody said I was good at it. I always felt real self-conscious. Um, but I figured Italian was closer to Spanish. I always heard how hard it was to learn German. So I was really kind of afraid of learning German. I tried to learn French and was, was miserable at that, mostly because French people just aren't very gracious about you trying to learn. You're like, you don't speak well, you're a pig. You're butchering You're not a human. You are subhuman. But the German people can be the same way. Swiss people can be the same way. But it ain't great. I figured, all right, let's go live in Italy. And, and I can get by with the language and blend in more readily. Yeah. And uh, so I got in, into a uh, restoration, museum studies restoration program. I was in the museum field. I was doing archaeology. And I thought it was the next step towards maybe securing a career field, too, because yeah. it would give me the credentials. I'd never formally studied museums or restoration or anything, but I just started working in the field. So I was like, well, this will give me some, you know, uh, some sort of certificate in it. Sure. So I was like, cool, two things at once. We get to continue the relationship. I get to live in the city of the Renaissance, Florence, which right. is a dream anyhow. And I had always loved Italy. I've been to Italy before, and I always thought it was amazing. I wanted to go back. And then, uh, so we went from a long-distance relationship from Santa Fe to Colorado Springs, which was about five hours, to almost the same from, from Florence to... Samadin, which was the, the Latin-speaking area of, uh, of uh, Switzerland. And so yeah. there was a lot of trains, there was a lot of crying in the train station and kissing <laughs> and hugging each other goodbye and yeah. all that stuff. Straight out of a Hollywood movie of another era. Right? Oh. <laughs> but, uh, so then uh, all that influences songs I was writing, because I was right. still writing songs about these things. We still have this song called Santa Fe Song Number Three that I wrote about that. Yeah. Had you had you put out the first Upper Strata album I had, already? I had. Um, it's actually the one that saved it huh? because I was not ready for a relationship, and I threw his cowboy boots out of the house. Like, you leave. I'm not ready for this. <laughs> and he handed me the CD. Now I'm back. To my CD player, put it in. I'm like, damn, I'm an, I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of the music that won her over. Which is funny because it's the first thing I ever talked about, too, was she was talking about how much she missed playing piano. Yeah. And so, first couple of times they hung out, it's like, I gotta find her piano. And took her to the piano shop, took her to this bar, they had a piano that anybody could play. Mm -hmm. Just, it was a mission to get her to be able to play music because I knew what that was like. To really be hungry to play music, but the first uh, the first Upper Strat album was just cleaning house. I just went into the studio. They they had just opened and they had really really cheap prices to go in and record. And I just said, all right, I'm just gonna just set me up live. I'm just gonna bang out these songs today. Yeah, and be done with it. And I had another group at the time called the Grim Fiends. The Grim Fiends? And, they were, and it was kind of like a funky, grunge, 90s type thing where you could imagine like like a little of the Chili Peppers with, I don't know, something spacey like Radiohead or something. Yeah. And, uh, and, and But still this sort of Pixies, Sonic Youth, grunge type thing going on too. All, it was just straight ahead alter. Yeah. And I thought that was a big project. And I was just cleaning out these other songs that had, didn't really fit in with that project. I didn't want them to go away, but I wanted a good recording of them. Sure. And then that project fell apart. <laughs> suddenly I had, I made Upper Strata the main project. Mm -hmm. And I also found, for the first time, holy crap, I can make really good money playing acoustic. Yeah. And I don't have to worry about 
finding a drummer, or if the bass player is going to show up, or this and this and that. Or also splitting the money. Multiple and splitting ways. money that doesn't exist with alternative music. Yeah. Playing in crappy bars, it's there isn't any money. It's maybe a bucket of beer, you know, and right. Oh, five people paid the cover, so here's your five bucks split between five of you. You know, it's like, yeah, it's a joke, honestly. And it's still like that. We still make a lot more money playing acoustic shows, and there's usually a guarantee, or maybe some free food. When we play alternative music, we don't get usually paid very much. Yeah. So at any rate, uh, I started to focus on playing acoustic. And like a bad relationship situation where you're burnt with bands, right. I was like, this is a lot more freedom. I don't have to worry about other people letting me down. I can just do my own thing. Right. And if I if I let myself down, that's something else. But sure. As long as I know the songs. And I was shocked. The people were just absolutely blown away. Because I was in this band where it was as challenging as I could get. And I was just lost in the mix. Mm-hmm. I was just fighting to be heard at all. And so my rhythm playing and what I could play and sing had gone to this whole other level. Yeah. And suddenly you strip away the drums and all the other guitars and stuff. And there was just really good rhythm stuff going on and really complicated things. And people were really impressed by it. So I was like, huh, this is weird. People seem to think I can play. Yeah. They seem to think I can sing. This is all new to me. Yeah. And... Uh, so suddenly I, I made the, the upper strata more of the focus, the, the, and I had a CD that I could sell, whereas the other band crumbled before we could get a CD together. And yeah. I put out albums in uh, Tampa with my first group when I was just a kid. I was like barely out of high school. Mm-hmm. And my little brother was still Sounds in high like school. Sounds like you at the months when you listen to it. Yeah, it's so Was your little brother in the band too? Yeah, my, my little brother was. Couldn't tell you what strings he was playing on, but everybody was like, wow, that kid can play. And he would just sit and get lost, hypnotizing himself, playing, playing, playing. So he was really, really good. No idea what he was doing musically. But it didn't really matter. And so I was like, wow, that's cool. That's completely opposite of what I have to really struggle to know how to play. I, I still don't think of myself as a guitarist. He could just do it naturally, and it just made me so frustrated. But I was like, "Well, I'm gonna capitalize on this. I wanna, I wanna get him up there." And turn out, I was terrified of being on stage. Really, really horrified. And so I was, I was, you know, kind of making him, him miserable to do it. Mm-hmm. And eventually, he just said, "I can't. I just can't do it. We're starting to play big places, and I don't like it. I just mm-hmm. can't do it. I really, it just makes me nuts." And so he, he bailed out. We got together and recorded one more album together, just late at night with a friend of mine, and we, and we never we never performed again. Together. It was just the two of you. No, it was originally it was uh, um, it was the two of us and a drummer and bass player, and then we switched bass players, and we had another drummer, and and then after Jeff left, my, my brother Jeff, I had another version of that band, Don, who just came to visit mm-hmm. us band mm. and then he went on to play in a dozen other bands in Tampa still active he's playing in like a flogging molly type band <laughs> yeah and I gave him his first bass it was my bass and I traded I just let him have it basically yeah at any rate uh, I got out to Colorado and I, just, I had the Green Fiends going I had another band going and then I had this the acoustic thing and, and then I got so burned out by all of it just that I just gave it a long break and I just did archaeology and museum stuff for a little while. And it was always nagging at me because I was having these cool experiences and I, I would go to these digs yeah. and I would pull out the guitar and I'd find other people could play and there's nothing to do sometimes on a dig because you're out in the middle of nowhere. Right. So the music was coming back to me slowly. People are like, wow, how'd you learn to play bottleneck like that? Or how'd you, how'd you learn to play the blues like that? And stuff like that. I really noticed that I had done that. I was so ambitious. Yeah. Right. I just woke up one day and noticed I could play. But, um, at any rate, so long, long break. And I got to Italy. And I, I wooed my future wife with the CD. And then <laughs> I got to Italy and there was, there was 
September 11th happened. Yeah. And it was just chaos. And I was a student. And there was no way to get money because all these people were panicked for money to get out of Italy. And it was just chaos. So I had no money. I had no way to live. And I, I got the guitar out. And I went out to street corner and I played. And then this other guy was like, you should go to this bebop bar over here and play the bebop bar. He'd let you play. He lets students play. Yeah. Paid me under the table. You know, and suddenly I'm racking up these gigs. And it felt comfortable and good because people loved it. And then also it was like, I'm afraid of not having money. And I'm afraid of not having a backup plan. Right. I don't think I want to give up the music again. And then, uh, so I got back into it again. And people wanted copies of the CD that was long out of print. And I got with my friend Claudio and recorded an album in Italy, which I never released. <laughs> and then uh, he just, didn't release it? just didn't get around to it, moving on. Yeah. Just got these live these recordings from his home studio in Florence. Talked about putting it out as Two Nights in Florence or yeah, Two nice. Songs of Love and Lust. Yeah, something like that was a title that was around. And, and then the songs ended up becoming songs that we played. Eventually. Yeah. We were in uh, Switzerland, eventually ended up living in Switzerland. And we started jamming there and started recording and um, and just doing home recordings. And she'd throw it out a beat or she'd do a bass line or something. We, she went from keyboard to bass. And we'd do these things, we call them the Sunday sessions, we'd just be jamming on a Sunday. Whatever popped in her head. Yeah. And, uh, she she told me the story earlier tonight of how she went from piano to playing bass for the first time mm-hmm. uh, for that acoustic gig. Mm-hmm. Oh, in the castle? Yeah. 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 And I guess she never bought it. And so we bought her this bass from Germany. Had it shipped over. Mm-hmm. We lived in Switzerland. And thought, man, it's awfully cheap for what it seems like, and it turns out to be this album right there. Yeah, it's this five-string fretless electric bass. Mahogany body. Yeah. Looks like a Warwick. Basically a Warwick style, yeah. yeah. But it turned out to be a great instrument. She ended up sticking with it and really taking to it in a way that very few bass players do, where they really own it. And they're not like a frustrated guitarist playing bass. They actually are into the groove. But I noticed it. We, I remember on one of our road trips, we were just driving along, and she's like, this is my favorite part of the song. Listen to this part right here. And it was the bass line. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. She could pick that out. Right. And it's like, usually only bass players notice bass lines. And sure. So I think she already had kind of the hard wiring for it. And I, I remember the first time listening to your stereo, it was like way bassy. The mix was way bassy. So I think she's always kind of been into that somehow on a subconscious level. But plus piano, you're playing the bass line. Playing the bass line with the left hand. But um, yeah, so we started Sunday sessions, just started writing the songs. Some of them we lost, some of them we still play. Um, and we got back to the States, and it was, I had a band when I was in Switzerland. Did that for like almost two years and we played a bunch of shows but it's really hard to get anything going so it's really yeah um and those guys just didn't get it they didn't know i don't know what they were waiting for they didn't know how to book shows they're really bad at it and then after i left they got another lead singer and was singing all my songs that i wrote with them and he was really good at booking and now they're big and they're playing all the like videos and almost you know, been on television and stuff, yeah and they're a lot bigger after me but it's still funny that the first couple of times they sent me live clips and demo clips and it was all my lyrics that they were still singing so i was like all right whatever that's fine hmm. um which is weird to think of somebody on the other side of the atlantic you know, singing my songs not knowing what i was singing really not because it's very personal stuff right we got back to the states though and i'm like we should get you a bass amp and try to do this because you can yeah you can play places like the mile higher <laughs> pizza places right and, you know and, and make a little beer money and have some fun in it. 
So we ended up playing like sandwich places in Phoenix and wine bars in Phoenix and uh, all over the place in Jerome and, and not Jerome, but yeah, Jerome, but also Bisbee. I was gonna say we played a lot of places in Bisbee. We only played a couple places in Jerome, so yeah. Jerome and Mohawk, but uh, we just started doing it, and pretty soon we had enough stuff to do our recording, and I was like, this is probably gonna get us more gigs if we have a CD to hand out. And uh, in some ways, I think it was daunting to people that were like, oh, this, this guy's too professional. What's going on here? Mm. They have this polished CD. Never heard of them. They've played three shows, but they have a CD already. What's right. going on? And we had this strange, like, sort of negative reaction about it. Really? Plus, we <laughs> had this whole problem that we were playing a lot of blues and we got pigeonholed as a blues band. Right. And we couldn't get away from that. Still can't. Still have all these people at work that want me to, when are you playing more blues? Are you going to do blues at this next show? Because I'll come out if you're doing blues. And I'm like, no, I'm doing blues. We're just doing what we do. I'm <laughs> doing this new wave stuff. But, but you know, and I still, I'll always love blues music. But you just have to give stuff a break. You know, and you can't just, it, it's just like if somebody told you to just use the same three colors to paint with for the rest right. of your life, you know, you get, you get bored with it. Yeah. Well, it's been interesting the, the sort of the evolution of the sound of the band since I met you guys because I think it was just I think you had that one EP out because I didn't know about yeah I didn't know about the first Upper Strata record before you were in the you know in the mix uh, until I had known you guys for probably at least six months or something like that, and you had the copy kicking around, and you guys eventually re-released it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what happened. That's probably how you got it. Was well, because I have... You got the original because I found a box of it. <laughs> yeah, I have the original and the re-release version. Um, I went to visit a friend, and he's like, remember when you used to live here? And I'm like, yeah. I want a box of your stuff. And in this box of stuff, there was yeah. some CDs, so... like sell those yeah yeah <laughs> and then i was like well, back when you had your record store i was like this guy's a cool guy yeah i appreciate us being able to play at mile high this is something he would appreciate i think because it's it's a it's like a collector's item. sure right? it's like this rarity from these absolute nobodies but yeah. the funniest thing was is that when i was i was curious about it i did a search on like amazon or something and uh, somebody somewhere was selling them for like 25 bucks a pop. Really? The original ones. I was like, huh, that's weird. That's, <laughs> it really is a collector's item. It's, there was, I've still got some, but somebody's selling them for 25 bucks each. There's a New Hampshire band that was, you know, early 90s to mid 90s. And well, I was telling you guys about my friend Mark, who plays in the Pretty Reckless mm-hmm. now, but. He was in this band, Fly Spinach Fly, uh, but he's the bass player in the Pretty Reckless. But he he's a horn player originally, and they only put out two CDs, and you know, it was real limited to New Hampshire area, and you know maybe did fifteen hundred in the original run. And I I tried to find a copy a couple of years ago. It's there was some guy that had it on Amazon, and they were selling for two hundred bucks a piece. <laughs> Jesus. What did you say? Twenty five bucks? Twenty five. It's not a full twenty five. Well, you you probably flooded the market. There was probably more out there. So. Well, yeah, and I was careful to put like slash with the new day, so that you know clearly it was a reprinting. Yeah. And the nice thing about reprinting it was we got to put more artwork in it. Yeah. I got to do this entirely print that I had done with a friend of mine in Basel. So I put this really cool artwork in there. Which is something I never got to do on the original one. If you open up the original one, it's just a insert cheapy thing because that's all I could afford, right? right? And it was still a huge deal to put out a CD. It was a really, really big deal, and people were just amazed that somebody independent was putting out a CD. It was just still not easy to do, not acceptable without a record label. And now it's like vinyl. It's the same, you know. If you can put it, put out a CD, no one gets damn. But out of vinyl, I was like, ooh, it's a big deal. Yeah. I was just telling her earlier today, 
I didn't know about this till I logged on to Facebook, but my brother Tim lives in Poland. His one of his bands just put out their album on vinyl today. Mm-hmm. I have not heard it yet. No. It's so strange because we have this generation of kids that really want this stuff. Mm-hmm. But you, at the exact same time, have have kids across the street from them that only want to download. Right. And when you have people who still ask for CDs, because we probably sold ten CDs to every vinyl in the last tour. Sure. Because people still play them in their cars, or they still put them on their well, but on their computer no, and that's them down. Too. It's, it's it's not because the last time we were at Best Buy um, to buy an external drive, there's a ton of CDs, uh, CD players that you can buy to plug into your computer because your computer doesn't have a CD player anymore. Right. Because you still have data on those things. You still have CDs you want to dump and things. DVDs. Still people have like these DVD libraries. No way to freaking plan. Right. So, I mean, you're trying to push this all to go to the cloud. So then we end up having to pay for it. So instead of having a hard copy that you can listen to as much as you want, if you want to keep the service, you got to subscribe to it. I don't That's know the you, whole angle. I don't know if you remember when DVDs first came out. Um, when Blu-ray came out, it was Blu-ray and HD DVD, and they were trying to see which one was going to win mm-hmm. in the format. Because whenever there's a new technology, there's more than one, and one of them obviously wins out. VHS obviously won out over Betamax, yeah, yeah. Um, even though... Beta was better. Beta was better. Um, I mean, I tend to think that HD DVD was a little bit better than Blu-ray too, but it's it all came down to Disney. Disney sided with Blu-ray, so it's one that won. But um, when DVDs were first coming out, there was a there was a alternate technology called DivX, which Circuit City had, because um, when DVDs first came out. Movies were like $25 and $30 a piece. DivX, it was $5 a piece, but you had to pay a dollar each time you watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to give them your credit card number like to this service, and you owned the disc, but in order to watch it, you had to pay this service, and it was just like, huh? you know, I was like, I was like, yeah, I mean, it was, they were too far ahead of their time and it was a Circuit City exclusive thing which why it didn't work and because I remember a year after Lucas refused to do Star Wars because he wanted in on this right he wanted to do a subscription that was essentially Netflix right long before anyone had just fast enough cable to watch anything right fast enough uh, internet so like you said they were just ahead of and, yeah. the, and the guy who bought like Evian, mm-hmm. French guy that bought Evian, was a the telecommunications water? guy. He bought Evian and then he bought Universal. Oh, the, and his yeah, whole the plan was to do this. Yeah. To have a subscription on your phone. You pay for your phone, you get music, you get movies. Yeah. All at the same time. But the technology was, was 10 years away from being able to really do it. Because not everybody... I mean, most people have flip phones, and it was this. Yeah, not smartphones. Phones were not the the all encompassing device that they are to people most people. People couldn't not. imagine it. People still had a phone at home, on the wall that didn't take pictures and things. It's. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because I I I think it's Nokia or some some phone company now. You sign up a new phone, your new plan. Netflix is included as part of the thing. <laughs> Just automatically. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, and Lucas eventually gave in, but yeah, I think he was right because it killed killed Blockbuster. It killed most of the time you go like I go up to Walmart or someplace and buy the movies I want to buy for five bucks because they come out and then a few months later they're five bucks. They're super cheap. Yeah, it's like well, I'm gonna wait and get the Blu-ray Star Wars movie because it's five bucks now. Guardians of the Galaxy or some geeky movie. The only kinds of movies that I would watch a hundred times. Right. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, much to her 
You'll, you'll Schindler's List, great film. You don't, you don't sit down to watch it after work. Right. It's a beautiful film. It's an amazing movie, but it, it tears you up. And you don't want to go through that. You know, the same with Ryan. Great film. Not saying that. Right. I don't want to watch it every night. I don't want to watch it once a month. Yeah. It tears me up. It makes me feel sad. <laughs> well, you'll be happy to know my friend, Dougney, who I talked to earlier today, was like, all I know about Star Wars is Chewbacca. That's, that's it. <laughs> She was kind of good-naturedly giving me a hard time because she knows what a Star Wars nerd I am. Like you, that freaking dark. <laughs> <laughs> well, we really... I don't even know how that... Oh, just different mediums and the way that vinyl's big and DVDs don't, don't mean anything now. We, we still did short runs of the last two albums. And actually, Cabaret War Terror, we ended up having to do a second pressing Mm-hmm. But it was just on really CD, on CD. Yeah. but we we did a really short run, like two hundred, two hundred or something. Is is the new one? Is it the first one that you pressed on vinyl? Mm-hmm. Ever. I mean, when I first started doing music as a kid with this first band in Florida, it was already too late to do vinyl then, right. and we put out cassettes. I still have one of those original. Yeah. Cassettes, believe it or not, but I never made the leap to CD until I got to Colorado. Yeah. Because it was just, it was just too expensive, too crazy to even try. And now it's really, you know, really it's cheap. Like, it's cheap to do CDs. You can get some crappy ones made really fast and mm-hmm. yeah. send them to you the next day. But uh, vinyl, you know, was, we had the whole, we had the vinyl done here in town through Telegraph. With the mastering done, master for vinyl, and then we had it pressed, the Cascade, over in Milwaukee, which is a little town near Portland. And it was nice because we just drove to load up the car, and you get in there, and there's this sh- the smell of the shellac or whatever, right. the vinyl smell. And it's just piles and piles of records, and you're like, this is big. This is not some little thing. There's there's thousands and thousands of records in this room right yeah. now. It's a huge warehouse. And they're acting like they're exhausted. Like, here's your little pile. Get out of our way. Right. <laughs> We've got bigger fish to fry. Beep, beep. You know, they're loading in huge amounts for big bands. Yeah. But it's still kind of exciting to be a part of it. It's It's been a long We put out the CD like the week before. We just did it. We sat down one night and did all the artwork and... We had a CD in a week. Yeah. And nobody cared. Everybody's like, eh, who's so what? Why did you do that? What a waste. No, you had one guy. One guy, a friend of mine, we basically put it out for him. Mm-hmm. He was like, he's nostalgic for CDs and VHS. Right. Sets no, and just give it another 10 or 20 years and everybody's going to be nostalgic about CDs. CDs, yeah. I'm still, that's still my format of choice. I mean, I love vinyl, but it's not convenient. You know, I don't have a turntable in my car. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> True. Um, <laughs> in Portland with all the potholes. <laughs> yeah, oh God. Well, it's funny too because now a lot of bands are, if they're putting out a physical format, sometimes they only put it out on vinyl, you know, and a lot of them come with a you know, little drop card with the digital thing in it and whatnot. I, 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 that too? I bought a CD couple, maybe month and a half ago um, and the CD came with a drop card which I was like but if you have the CD you can you can just put it in your disk drive but then I was like like you were saying a lot of people's computers don't have a disk drive anymore mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I, thought, I thought that was kind of cool I just mm-hmm. read an article that only like 2 to 5% of the download cards are actually being used, used. in vinyls. yeah yeah we give away a lot of download cards when Every single every single time I buy a new album on vinyl that has one of those, I give I give it away mm-hmm. to someone because chances are if because I'm pretty picky about what I buy on vinyl, like I don't there's very few bands that I will buy an album on vinyl sight unseen. Mm-hmm. One because it's more expensive than the CD, and two if I'm not going to listen to it, you know, like if if I buy it and then you know I, I think the uh, 
I think the last album that I bought on vinyl, not really knowing the band, was that Alabama Shakes album. And it was good, but I was like, ah, I'm probably not going to listen to this much. I think I ended up selling it to some place. Um, but yeah, like whenever I buy, uh, I'll take a little bit next. Whenever I buy like a band that I really like, I buy it on vinyl. I already you know, the, the Apple Center. Nice. Sorry, for the folks at home. What's the, what's the brand? You, you want to try to say it? I don't know. I just bought it. Let me see. What? Berediatua. <laughs> Spanish, Spanish cider. cider. Is it really? Yes, a Basque apple cider. Ooh, nice. It looks like it's got little bits of apple floating in the bottom. That's, I you know, that's hope weird. it's... Yeah, <laughs> bits of something. <laughs> Well, that's how you know it's real. If it's cloudy. You interrupted him. Of course. We had some cider. That's what, that's what a conversation is all about. It's a bowl. Glad that you can make it to visit. Yeah, thanks for... Uh, you can have it on the CD or album, whatever you want. What's that? You can have the thing on the CD or album, whichever you want. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Download card, too. It's dry. It smells sweet. It is dry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very dry. That's bad. Where did you find that at? <laughs> New season? Wow. That's exactly the, the taste we had in Spain. That's amazing. Oh, you should have. We got it like, for it. Hi. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How about this? I'll go outside. And I'll throw it down. Downstairs. Yeah, I'll hold the cups down there and you pour it from no, the balcony. No, you stand there with the mouth open <laughs> and we're trying to like pour it in. It's kind of... Strange aftertaste. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the real stuff. Yeah. It's like that. You have it with blue cheese and you don't notice. Yeah. You have it with really strong cheeses and it, it, it just blends well. Yeah. That's how we had it the first time. We, I found this little place tucked away in Barcelona in the Barrigati. And it was just cozy little tiny thing that just people packed in there. Yeah. And I was like, that's the one we need to go in. That's going to be the real place. And we squeezed our way into the bar and they weren't all that cool with that. They're like, eh, all right. And then they were nice to us, and they brought us up this crazy cheese board. And they're like, so, these are going to be simple cheeses, and then as you go this way, they're going to get more complicated, harder to, and sure enough, it was like, by the time we got to the end, it was like, wow, I don't even know what, how to describe that. But it all kind of blended with the cider. Yeah. Because it's, it kind of has like a blue cheese. Yeah, for sure. Aftertaste, so. But, uh. Yeah, I, we got the her the region that we lived at at first in Switzerland was famous for apple wine, and they had what they call the hideout, where it's like they ask you at the, at the Alpine hut, you know, you're going <laughs> up, and you, they give you more juice and less wine. And if you say you're done for the day, you're going down. More they wine, less juice. Wine. Yeah. yeah, and they they mix it right then. It's this like cloudy apple juice. Yeah. It's amazing. And then apple wine. And they did another one with Hollenda Bloom. It's like mineral water and, and, and herbs. They call the Swiss leaves. Phenomenal. If you're anywhere near eastern Switzerland, get a Swiss leaf. It's amazing. Um, more cheese. Yeah, I was going to say, it, de- it definitely has like a blue cheese. Kind of, yeah, but I like that. I like bitter things like that. I like the smell. Even it smells a lot sweeter than it, than it tastes. Mm-hmm. That's usually where this this place we found. <laughs> this place we found in a, in town has has some really good cider like that. Mm-hmm. Spanish taco place. And we're missing that food. And it's funny because I've been to Spain years and years. And I was like, did I imagine that this was awesome or was it really cool? And yeah. So I got to go with her and, and it was awesome. It was a really good time. She's like, how do we move to Barcelona? And my aunt is ready. She has a house in Andorra, neighboring. Yeah. In the Pyrenees there. She's ready to become a Spanish citizen. Yeah. So she did this research and found out that she could. 
Really? Because it's not. I was just like my grandparents were Spanish citizens, and so so you could I could still apply. Yeah. And she could and is applying for a Spanish. Now it's going to be a Catalan <laughs> passport because they're in their own country. Now. Right. Or getting sure. ready to be. But I was like, I hope you got a Spanish passport before the split. That way you could get a second one for this new country. Right. But I don't know if it works like that. So at any rate, they, they have a house on the beach of Spain. And uh, we went to see them in Andorra. But uh, she's telling her, yeah, he could be Spanish. And she's like, all right. Let's do this. You become Spanish, I'll leave tables in this top of bar right here. <laughs> she's, and she's like, hey, you! We need a waitress. I am a tables. I wasn't drunk. <laughs> and he, he was like a French, French guy, so she's like trying to put on a charm and speak to him in French too, so that's fine. So are, are you a U.S. citizen too? No. No. I'm, I'm going to have to decide soon because my green card is going to expire again in two years. Yeah. But I have to swear that I'm only loyal to one country. Yeah. Difficult. Just kind of difficult. Especially right now. Especially yeah. with the current situation. And with the current situation, we may not have two years. Maybe they decide for us that she's not eligible because they're changing the who, who can be eligible. And mostly it's based on who has a big bank account and can pay their way into the country. Sure. And we who don't buys a condo? Obviously, we don't have that. Writing so. on it? Um, and, uh, but we're not upset about that. If we have to go live in Switzerland again, I'm okay with that. I mean, I, I did the hard work of learning enough German to get by. I adore her family. She's got, her family's done more for me than my own family in a lot of ways. They're wonderful people. I would I would go back just to hang out with your sister. She's cool. Who is she? I would hang out with Rob. I would hang out. You know, there's amazing museums. There's amazing things in Switzerland. And then to get to see her nieces and nephews growing up again. We got to they're see them when we got to see them when they were little babies. And yeah. And now they're all getting to be grown. And so, but they're neat people, and I would not be upset to go back to Switzerland. I think you would be in some ways. Music is going to be harder. Music is rough, but if you get a gig, you get money for it at least. <laughs> or you just focus on recording. You focus on that and just put it out online. We don't really care. Because mm-hmm. that's how we started. We, we don't mind going back to that. I love performing live. It's yeah. something, there's the, the terror of it, the excitement yeah. of it. Um, and I always want to do that. And the sad thing is is that what you learned on tour is, is that when you do it every night, you get so good at it. You get so... Uh, practice that you can think about something while you're watching the TV above the bar and you're and you're singing and you're doing all this multitasking. Yeah. And then somebody comes and says something to you and you have a conversation with them and you can and then you can still have problem over the top of that. And it's like training for a marathon or something. You you, you get to this plateau of of being able to play. And so the sad thing to me would be to give up playing live and not have that ability. Yeah. So that when I want to sit down and play something, um, I don't have to think about it. It's just there. Um, and I see that, too, in my current line of work, and I'm not going to say where I work. Right. I'm not plugging those people. But uh, <clears throat> they, uh, I play guitar every day yeah. for, for a living now. And uh, I can see that that has changed with the chops a lot, too. You know? yeah. so there's just different levels of it. Recording coming up with these ideas that would be exciting mm-hmm. but there is something cool about the live situation but you get so much vacation in Switzerland <laughs> that conceivably we could do a two week tour every year so we put all the vinyl that is now in our apartment at Scott's house no. Scott's house <laughs> yeah. yes <laughs> well currently my my house is parked car yeah <laughs> slash I mean car. I got a storage unit too and then yeah you just send Some me a Send me an email. All right, send us ten more. <laughs> we need ten more shipped over. Yeah. No, we figure something out. Um, because it's a lot of albums to do. 
I don't know if you saw it back in there, but I have tons of paintings too. Jeez. Well, you were showing me some of them today, but yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of artwork. Um, and I was explaining that I had the show at ASU. I don't know, 70, 70 pieces in that. She had pieces in that too. She had her photos. Right? Yeah. yeah. And then there was a show at, at a place in Scottsdale, and there was a show in the thing in downtown Phoenix, and I just had these rotating shows going on, and then a German buddy of mine had a whole bunch of paintings up, and I never had to worry about where I was keeping these paintings. They were all on display all the time. And then as soon as all that ended, I had boxes and boxes right. of paintings. And it's like, I really need to do a show and just sell some of these damn things, because they're just overwhelmed with paintings. Plus, I want to paint more stuff. And I can't really justify it. When you have a stockpile. I've got a stockpile. Trust me, I, I understand that problem. Unless I start painting over stuff like today. Like right. We were sitting painting today, and I put the painting over and the painting. I didn't care about it. So, and there's those paintings right there on the wall. There's probably five paintings underneath them. Hmm. Because... It was a Mona Lisa before. Yeah. And <laughs> she was nude, and then she had clothes, and then she did you know. <laughs> but that was that was kind of fun today too um, sitting here painting because I it's funny I shared uh, I had a shared artist space uh, for a year last year and but there was hardly it, it was eight other artists but there was hardly anyone there when I was painting hmm. so it was kind of cool to and the couple times that there was one of the painters, uh, this woman Beth Wittenberg, who's a really dynamic painter, um, who'd been painting, you know, at least fifteen years longer than me, and went to school for it. Whenever we were there at the same time, I would just I wouldn't get anything done because we'd just be talking. Um, so, but and I think we talked a little bit while we were painting. Yeah, we totally did. We yeah. were talking about all kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah, we had those long Pink Floyd conversation. Yeah, we were talking about Radiohead and, and uh, Bobby Womack. Bobby Womack. We played some of that. We played some uh, Rufus Thomas talking My about stacks. And, yeah, we did play it. We were there. But the funny thing is, is that to me, uh, that that's what so, was so great about art school was hanging out with other artists and, and bouncing ideas off of each other. And that's, I think, for me, part of the mysticism of, of the Bauhaus to read about that school and to think that Paul Clay and Kandinsky and these absolute giants were all in the same place at the same time. Right. And their their mission was to educate. And I was picking up a book on the Bauhaus the other day and it was like the first line was the greatest art school that ever was. And it's like, yeah, it probably was. It probably was because at least mythically you imagine that it was. Yeah. How in the world do you have these great people? But my buddy Don, it was just here when I was talking about, that's how we got to be friends. We painted side by side. Yeah. And sometimes we tormented each other and ridiculed each other. Sometimes we, uh, sometimes we supported each other. Right. But it was this journey of how do we how do we make good paintings? How do we get where we're going? And how do we get out of ourselves and get to some other place as artists? And and I think we're still friends because of that that sort of bonding. But that's the great thing about our school. Even if you're ha sitting around having coffee between classes, you don't feel like you're as much of a freak. You don't feel like you're a failure or silly for making art because you're with other people that are making art. Yeah. And it's like, no, we all feel like this is important. We're all taking our time. And it's like I would do these education programs in Scottsdale, art programs. And uh, I would always tell the students, I'd say the only difference between an artist and a non-artist is that an artist makes art. Right. And it's the only thing. It's that you might have paintings in your brain. You might have the inspiration, but if you don't sit down and do it, then you're then you're not an artist because right. you're not producing something. And uh, when you're with other artists, it's just somehow encouraging because you feel like, oh, this isn't a waste of time. This is important, and we can talk about it. We can we can do this together. But I was geeking out on it today because it just reminded me of my buddy Robert when I was in eighth grade or something. We used to sit around. Uh, 
try to copy images from Heavy Metal Magazine right. and Epic Magazine and Star Wars books and right. Ralph McGuire and all this stuff. And we were just two geeky kids sitting there. If we weren't like talking about Dungeons and Dragons, we were sitting there playing, we were sitting there drawing this stuff. Right. Right. And I never played Dungeons and Dragons my whole life, but I loved the artwork and I would try to draw it. So yeah. And all my friends would have me draw them. Like, this is my elf character. Can you draw me? And it was geek, geekdom beyond right. geekdom, but still that kind of experience we had today of just sitting in. Yeah. We're just two kids coloring. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, it's so sad that people judge that, think that's a waste of time or something. Well, it's weird because, like, every little kid loves to draw. And at some point, it's, uh, no, go ahead. Uh, at some point, we're told that, you know, most of us stop drawing because we're told it's not good enough, you know. Or it doesn't represent anything. Right. Um, or you're never going to make money at it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, yeah, it's, we, at some point, we get talked out of our creativity. And it's, I mean, you know, even if you're excellent at art or, you know, music or whatnot, especially in this country is, well, you're never going to make money. It's not a practical way to make a living. So mm -hmm. why don't you focus on this? So it's, you know, it's, I don't know. I, I always get a sense of camaraderie, not just with other artists, but, you know, musicians and stuff like that who create not because they're trying to necessarily make a living at it, but because they have to. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, that, 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 fire that pilot light of creativity never went out and then it's just like you gotta do it mm -hmm. oh absolutely and um, when I had a studio in Switzerland I had my own little painting room and I used to always hang up the artwork for my nieces and people would be like well, why, why do you put that up as kids art like they were judging it as kids art it's like this is, this is real art when they learn to read, then they'll stop making real art. You know? right. and, and they start, and sure enough, as soon as uh, Vivian started to learn to read, she started to do letters instead of drawings. Yeah. She did these fabulous drawings. They're probably still happening somewhere. Just wonderful, whimsical drawings, and they were so, so cool. It's like, why are the cat's feet so big? Well, they look big to her, so yeah. she made them big. And, you know, you've got this cat with like 10 story long feet, you know, right. but it did just seem big to her, and so she she focused on what was important in, in, in her kid little mind, and um, Dubuffet, Jean Dubuffet, he did an exhibit where he basically said, the art of children, the blind, and the insane is, is the only real pure art. Mm -hmm. They're not taking on the pretension of art, they're not taking on the commodity of they're just doing it because they can't help it. This is true expression. Right. We should be trying to get to that. Right. Somebody asked me at work today, I said, so is your buddy Scott a good painter? I said, not particularly, but he has good intentions. Yeah. And he does it because he oh, has to do me. it. <laughs> he does it because he has to do it. He feels like he has to do it. And I respect that. I said, will he be a good painter someday? He already is because he has this good right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I and it's just like that. It's it, like you said, the people who have to do it, I respect. Um, and what does that even mean? A yeah. good artist or an important artist or whatever. It's just silly. Um, he did an exhibit, thing of of these you know insane people and children and things, and said, "Look, they just are making real art. Why aren't we?" And Paul Clay later on same kind of idea. He was very influenced by children's art. Yeah. Um, I think Keith Haring followed from that too. Sure. Why aren't we painting pop cultural things? Why aren't right. we? There's, you know, this is our reality. I'm expressing my reality. It's a little flying saucer and a TV. Yeah. Because we're all TV babies in America. And, uh, that, that it's just as valid an expression. There's something to me, that's kind of silly and, and, and pretentious about trying to be a, 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 an impressionist painter or mm -hmm. a landscape painter in this day and age. Plain air painting, fine. You go out, you paint what you see. In the age of 
photography, you have to wonder about that. But, you know, yeah. photos are flat. You know, how are you going to bring yourself into it? Like we were saying today, it's like painting yourself in a circle when you're doing this abstract stuff because it's like, well, how do you know when you're done? Yeah. <laughs> it looks like a bowl of fruit. It's supposed to be a bowl of fruit. You're done. Yeah. Abstract paintings go round and round in circles. Uh, and you never really know. Um, but it's always this personal journey, I think. It's always this, this idea of where, where is the art taking me? Yeah. You know, more than anything. And it's taking you to how many states? So. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> another uh, <laughs> 34. 34 to go. 17 down, 34 to go. And I would be curious to see your reflections on it a year from now. You know, yeah, yeah. How, how it affected you. Well, I've been doing like a, at some point every day, although I actually didn't do it yesterday, which is okay. Um, I'll just sit and talk because I, I have another one of these in the car um, that I just kind of give my thoughts on the day and like, you know, what, not even necessarily like what, I did or anything, but just kind of like where my mind is at. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, I mean, it was interesting when, when I was leaving, my mother asked me, you know, what do you, what do you expect to learn from this trip? And I'm like, if I knew what to expect, <laughs> I probably wouldn't feel like I had to go on the trip. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I, I'm like, I know it's going to have some effect on me, but it might, it might take years f for, you know, something to hit me mm -hmm. in particular but you know well if you get in a situation where you wish you had that freedom to go and do something crazy like that yeah and um, in that I mean it's it's something that becomes kind of a source of inspiration to just look back on it and be like oh man that yeah. was, that was a crazy thing I did but yeah. I'm glad I did it because now look you know after right. For sure. World War 3 you know we can't Get out of this bunker. Right. You know? <laughs> Remember when there were trees and I drove by them? <laughs> yeah, but I didn't have to wear this oxygen mask and yeah. radiation suit. Remember when us humans still had skin? We <laughs> <laughs> yeah. only two eyes. Yeah. Oh man, that's funny. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna put I'm gonna stop this thing. Uh, <laughs> not that getting too serious. No no no. I just uh <laughs> It's funny, normally on these, I let them go kind of however long, mm -hmm. you know, the conversation goes. But also, I think this is the first one where I've recorded where I was staying with the people. So, like, I, you know, I could leave it on for another three hours, <laughs> and, you know, until we fall asleep or whatnot. Yeah, and then three people are snoring. Yeah, well, two of us for sure. The neighbors are pounding on the door. Yeah. Um, but also, because yeah. I'm recording so many of them, I was like, ah, I got to do like an hour, and we're we're at an hour and six minutes. Oh, wow. So I wasn't even sure how long we had been talking. Until I... Yeah, I got to edit it too, which is. Oh, I don't edit it. <laughs> you don't? Nope.